Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Well, welcome to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. We've got a great show for you tonight. And as you know, this is the show that respects your intelligence. We honor you as a citizen, and we're willing to bring you the stories and often the voices that the mainstream media won't share with you. Well, if you don't know her yet, I hope you'll get to know her tonight. Stacy Washington is joining us. Many of you know her from her show, Stacy on the Right, which airs on the SiriusXM network on the Patriot channel every night from 9 to midnight Eastern, 8 to 11 Central. Stacy, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you being with us tonight. Eric, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, Stacey, you're on the Patriot Channel. For those of our viewers who haven't gotten a chance to, to know you yet, you are a Patriot yourself. You're also a U.S. Air Force veteran. If you could, let's just begin. Tell us a little bit about your service to the country. Well, I'm a fourth-generation military uh, veteran in my family. It was my father, my grandfather, and my great-grandfather, my all on my dad's side, who served. And I'm married to a veteran, my husband, and I met on active duty in the Air Force. We lived in the same dorm. Um, I was a – so it's data analysis on weapon systems, so a weapon system analyst, and it was the F-16 and F-15E. Those were my weapon systems. And so I would examine the aircraft and talk to the crew chiefs about the breaks and provide readiness support reports that would be daily, weekly, and monthly, and they would go all the way up to the President of the United States because at all times, the Commander-in-Chief needs to know how many aircraft are ready to scramble anywhere on the face of this planet um, so that we can maintain air and space superiority. So uh, it was a great time in my life. I loved it, but they just wouldn't transfer me here to Air Mobility Command from Air Combat Command. And my husband had already separated, and I wanted to be with him. So when he moved to the Midwest, I separated to join him. And that was the end of, I have one tour in, on active duty in the Air Force. Awesome. And Stacey, I want to get your your thoughts on where we're at as a country right now. And I might even ask you to put on your your, your hat as a, a child of veterans. You know, you were the daughter of a, of a United States Army police officer. I know that you spent a lot of your childhood actually growing up in Germany. You've traveled abroad extensively. When you look at where the United States is today in 2020, uh, where do you see us? Well, we're hanging on the edge, the very periphery of um, socialism. And we know this because the kids in our public school systems, all the way from kindergarten, all the way up to university level, have all been taught to revere socialism, and they've been taught to dislike capitalism. And so um, I'm looking around and I'm seeing that. Now, mind you, we have, I, I grew up in Germany. That's a socialist country but they practice capitalism. So they have socialism in their social programs and capitalism in the you know means of production that are owned privately. So uh, it's a hybrid. And the only reason it worked for the past, I don't know how many decades, Eric, is because the United States military and the United States taxpayers provided all of their defense. So if you don't have to have defense in your budget as a line item, you can afford to have socialistic policies on your social side. And of course they pay 60, 70% in taxes, which Americans would absolutely revolt if we had those taxation rates. So 
Uh, it's a very different form of government. The most accurate portrayal of it is obviously Venezuela, which is, you know, a, a roiling dumpster fire. And that is where you can look to see where will America be? The first thing they did in 2012 was confiscate the weapons. We see a push for that from the Biden administration incoming. They obviously want to control Americans' right to keep and bear arms. And so it's very important that we resist that at every turn. Uh, but I, I, where do I see us? I see us saying goodbye to the best president we've had in modern history. I see us saying goodbye to promises made, promises kept. And that's a dangerous place for us to be. But uh, as Americans, we can overcome anything with the grace of God. And I believe we will do so again. Awesome. And Stacey, there's a couple of things I want to I want to pick up on there. Uh, you are a big supporter of the Second Amendment. Uh, you've worked on NRA issues uh, for a long time. You just touched on that. One of the things that Joe Biden has said as he comes into office is that he's looking to defeat the NRA. Uh, what do you make of that Biden policy promise? And what do you predict in terms of the future of the Second Amendment in this country? I, I tweeted him that he would fail. Um, so we have a very unique set of circumstances going on right now, and that is that uh, we had this breaching of the Capitol last week, which it was a riot. They broke into the Capitol, no different than Antifa on Black Lives Matter, breaking into courthouses, burning courthouses, all the things that happened last year. The only difference this time is some of the people who engaged in this activity were wearing Trump gear. Um, so it's a national case. We have 20,000 plus troops now stationed in and around the Capitol for the virtual inauguration of Joe Biden. Uh, I feel like it's a false flag event. They're looking for any person to do anything wrong so that they can justify a gun grab coming into you know the, the next administration. But I, I, there's some things that make us unique from other countries in that as Americans, the right to keep and bear arms is something that's baked into the cake for us. It's a cultural phenomenon as well as a, a, a liberty that's constitutionally protected. And we have between 450 and 650 million guns on the street in America today, lawfully owned. That's not including the illegal gun market. And then lastly, Eric, there's something that is completely unique to America in that um, we don't actually have the apparatus for collection of guns unless it's a voluntary act. So you'll always find people who would voluntarily turn in their guns for a small payment, inoperable guns, guns that are antiques that don't work. But for people like me, who every gun we own, my husband and I picked it, or it was a gift from me to him or him to me. Uh, every gun in the house has been fired by all five members of the household um, that we take advanced training in firearms. People like us are not just going to stroll into some sheriff's office and drop off our firearms. So they have to find a way to make it palatable. We have about half of the country that wants some kind of gun control, but they don't want confiscation. And I, I want to just point out, last year was a record year for gun purchases, 22 million, I believe it was, 22 million firearms purchased, and 8 million new gun owners. And a lot of those people are Democrats running from uh, the firebomb cities and the danger that they experience there. So uh, it's a unique time. I, I don't see gun confiscation as something you can immediately get into, but he would love to. Yeah, well, look, there's you talk to uh, owners of, of firearms facilities around the country, and they will tell you that they can't even keep ammo on the shelves right now. And that's true across the country. People have been out, they've been purchasing firearms, they've been purchasing um, ammunition. Stacey, you've also been, you've been a very big supporter of the president. When you look right now at the president's legacy, what stand out to you as his biggest achievements? 
Well, um, I go straight to the veterans. He reformed the Veterans Administration so that vets no longer have to wait for months and months and months to get seen for care. He also is the only president in modern history not to start a war or conflict abroad. And um, as far as veterans go, I, I really want to point out that the it's the reform of the VA, but it's also not starting wars, but it's also drawing down troops from overseas. He brought them home and he had to fight members of the Republican Party to do it. Um, so that, to me, is his probably signature policy achievement. Obviously, things he did for black Americans, highest increase in household income for uh, median household income for a family of four was experienced by blacks under President Trump, lowest unemployment for blacks and Hispanics and women um, and highest vote share of minority voters in modern history. I could go on. I actually have memorized briefing books worth of information about the president's accomplishments. But Eric, I would say the most consequential thing for him was that he made promises on the campaign trail. He wrote them on his uh, campaign website. Then he transferred that onto a whiteboard in the White House. And Alveda King and others on our coalition have reported back that they've seen this whiteboard in his own handwriting where he's crossed out things that he promised to do. That is unheard of. Polls show that Americans desperately want politicians to do the things they promised to do in order to get the vote. President Trump is probably the only politician at his level to have ever done that. Yeah, and he did. He's kept those promises. And I'm so glad, Stacey, that you mentioned this about the VA, because when people look at President Trump's legacy, they oftentimes, unless they're veterans or the family member of a veteran, you know, aren't cognizant enough because those achievements weren't covered in the mainstream media. But we saw for so long, whether it was under President Bush, President Obama, lots and lots of challenges and increasing challenges in the VA. President Trump and his team have really started to turn turn that around. Before we go, Stacey, I also want to get your thought. You're obviously a person of faith. You talk a lot about how people of faith need to come together in this country to, to revive the country. Talk, if you would, a little bit about the president's relationship with people of faith across the country. So, you know, that was something to me that was a little surprising because, Eric, my husband and I, when our kids were about the age of your kids, <laughs> we were... <laughs> avid watchers of The Apprentice. And so we put them to bed and you know how lengthy the bedtime routine can be. And so after you right. wipe the feet of sweat off your forehead, because you've bathed three children, you know, under five and you've gotten them all stories read, little went through your numbers, all the little games and exercises. You've given them a sip of water, you've kissed them, you've gone in and snuck in and prayed over them while they're asleep. We're on the couch, like literally wiped out. And it would be our night once a week to watch The Apprentice. And so we would get our popcorn, literally, we'd actually eat popcorn and watch it. And I tell you, we loved President Trump back then because that man could see through a liar, he could pick a winner, and he was entertaining. And there, the challenges that they undertook were really a lot like, we would compare it to parenting. You know, how do you get two kids who play Little League soccer, you know, tiny tot soccer, to two separate games across town between two people when one works full time and there's only one other person. Well, right. Stacey will solve it and we would figure it out and we would do it and this was our life. And so uh, we loved him. And then when his daughter came on the scene and she was a part of the team, it was just the best. And so I, I look at that and I think about the, it was just like a fun time. And then I look at him now. I never thought he was a Christian back then. Now I see him as someone who I don't know his true faith walk. Like, how can you know? You don't know mine. I don't know yours. But I know he started off on inauguration, confessing the name of Jesus Christ from a, from that, that beautiful stage. And he's being inaugurated. He's being sworn in. And he chose- I know we've only got about 20 seconds left. Please go on. Yeah. 
I want to say he has been great to us, people of faith, and I hope we can have a president like that again. Beautiful. Folks, that's Stacey Washington, United States Air Force veteran. Check her out on SiriusXM Radio on the Patriot Channel. Stay right with us. We'll be back in a minute. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back to Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. It's only Monday, but it feels like it's already been an entire Newsweek. Lots of big stories have happened already over the course of the weekend and today. And to break down some of the biggest stories right now at justthenews.com, we're going to bring in Joe Weber, news editor at justthenews.com. Joe, thanks so much uh, for joining us today. For our viewers who are just coming back from work, a lot's been happening already today. The number one story at the moment at justthenews.com has to do with this contrast between Florida in California and how they've handled coronavirus. As most of our viewers know, Florida has been relatively open. California has had some of the most severe lockdowns in the country, but we've got a big story up right now at justthenews.com. Please uh, bring, bring our viewers up to date. Oh, I'd be happy to. This really is a tale of uh, two states and some of the really fabulous reporting done by one of our reporters. Uh, Daniel Payne, he's just dove into the numbers. I don't want to mire down the, the um, viewers in a lot of numbers, but just very quickly, if you take a look at California, 39 million people, Florida, 21 million. Meanwhile, uh, California has 3 million uh, reported cases versus California, Florida, which is 1.5. So you can kind of do the numbers there. But here's what's interesting. Uh, the reporting that Daniel did, he takes a look at the numbers per 100,000 residents. And that's a way... Uh, for people to really make comparisons. That's why you can sort of maybe compare like the murder rate in Boise to the murder rate in New York City, right? You just break it down by 100,000 people. And what he's basically found is that every single statistic, you take a look at hospitalizations, uh, seven-day averages, um, number of people who are infected, they were all basically even, right? Nevertheless, beyond the fact that California has far more people. They took a look at what DeSantis did, right? So when March pandemic came in March, shut the place down. By June, he had opened up restaurants and bars. By September, he had opened op opened up schools. Um, excuse me, by September, he had opened up most of the other businesses. And by November, he had schools up and rolling. They take a look in California, uh, where Gavin Newsom has stopped indoor dining. And most statistics point out that there's very little evidence that that's really a big contribute to the viruses. And there's that. Uh, he kept the beaches closed, which is very strange because that was one place where people really did be able to get to recreate in open air. And the other thing that I find uh, it, this conversation has to include is that with Newsom and some of the other officials, Nancy Pelosi and an L.A. County supervisor breaking some of these uh, health safety regulations, they had a credibility problem. And then when your leaders don't do it, uh, people don't follow. And I think that's contributed a lot to their problems there. Yeah, I mean, look, there were certainly a lot of accusations of hypocrisy when Gavin Newsom was caught out dining with lobbyists and others at a time when California was going through some severe restrictions. Uh, to this day, 
You've got lots of gyms and businesses and restaurants which have been forced into, into bankruptcy or at least something very close to it because of those, those policies. And yet, again, that story is available, folks, at justthenews.com. You look at the data compared to Florida, which has been one of the most open states in the country, and, and you, can, you can look at the data uh, for, for yourself. Um, another big story. Yeah, another big story, Joe, that, that folks are, are clicking on a lot has to do with the Lincoln Project co-founder. If you could please remind our viewers what the Lincoln Project was and what this uh, this update is, please. Right, happy to. The Lincoln uh, Project was a, uh, a culmination of a group of very influential uh, people, politicos, I would say, in, in Washington, including Kellyanne. Uh, Conway's husband, George, another uh, fellow by the name of John Weaver. Now, John Weaver uh, was a presidential campaign director for uh, John Kasich and John McCain, uh, who were both two very big Trump um, critics. So it's not surprising that he joined this. It's almost like you get an ad in, a, in your mailbox, like a pre-mailer saying you pre-qualify to join this, this group. But nevertheless, he was found by some, access, some reporting on Axios uh, to have solicited young men uh, for, for sexual favors in exchange for political jobs. And, you know, the, the people whom I talked to all, all weekend and here in Washington said that, you know, Weaver, as everybody knows, one of the greatest political minds in Washington. Anytime he spoke, I, I listened because the insight he had to electoral politics was just fascinating. And everybody I talked to says the same thing. But at the same time, they said what he did was unforgivable. And um, there you have it. He also suggested this was a hit campaign. But let's just face it, Washington is a very difficult town. If you if you want to come, you know, whatever you do, it will be held scrutinized by everyone everywhere. And that's just the way things go. Yeah. And the Lincoln Project obviously had come to prominence with all with this big campaign against President Trump and also directed at a number of other uh, Republicans over the course of this last this last election cycle. Uh, another big story has to do with the DNI, Joe, and the, that's the director of national intelligence and what he has said happened in the 2020 election specifically related to China. What's what's the latest there? Yeah, this is rare. Um, the intelligence community, as you know, typically sticks together. They call themselves the intelligence community. This is CIA, FBI, um, and other groups that gather intelligence around the world to try to figure out what is going on. Now, they came out, their ombudsman came out, they said that uh, they felt like China was really not involved in um, meddling in the 2020 elections, or at least not politically. And Radcliffe said, hey, wait a second here. I look at this stuff every day and I'm not going to, you know, I don't want to go rogue, but I'm here to tell you that based upon what I've seen and the fact that I'm, you know, an expert in this, I've got to tell you, I, you know, there was appears to be political influence in this and China did appear to be far more involved than what um, the, the intelligence community has said uh, at large. Now, one other thing about this, it's very difficult to suggest that somebody's looking into elections did not have a political motivation. That, I think that raised a lot of uh, flags from the begin with when the Ombuds report came out. Yeah, and, and Joe, right now, we've also, at justthenews.com, uh, there's been a lot of reporting, most of it led by John Solomon, about Hunter Biden's own relationship with Chinese companies. So this has been a concern uh, uh, for a long time, and for many people, they're worried about this potential turn in policy that the Biden administration might take towards China. President Trump obviously took a much tougher line with China. 
with the director of national intelligence's comments, any indication as to what he thought the specific actions that China might have taken were? Did he point to any specifics? He did not. He just said that he reviewed all available evidence, and he is a person who reviews it every day. Uh, so we're going to rely on the fact that he does have access to the most intelligence and the most uh, pristine intelligence, and may, and uh, you know accept his conclusion. Yeah. So let, let's also continue on this kind of Team Biden policy agenda uh, issue. We've got a couple of stories up at justthenews.com about Team Biden's policy agenda. There's, there's a, a breaking story about. Team Biden planning to cancel the XL pipeline, but there's also a wider story about Team Biden's emerging policy agenda, what he's likely to try to accomplish in the first 10 days. If you could please give our viewers just an update on what we're looking at there in terms of the first 10 days of the Biden administration. Well, I do think that he's gonna come out of the box and try to um, pass legislation or executive orders on uh, climate change, and one of them would probably be to repeal the Keystone Pipeline. It's as much symbolic as it is really um, substantial in terms of limiting fossil fuel. This was a, champ, a pet uh, platform project for um, President Trump. He got elected on that. It's an effort to try to rid the United States of their dependence on Arab oil uh, by bringing it from Canada to the Gulf, uh, Gulf State uh, refinery plants. So. This was just sort of a shot right away. Now we're taking a look. He suggested that he might do some repeal on immigration reform. Uh, he's obviously going to try to pass this multi-trillion dollar bill to help him get uh, enough coronavirus vaccines into the arms of people. Uh, it's a huge bill. It's going to be very difficult for him because he's thrown in this idea that he wants to have $15 minimum wage. Now, everybody wants to have a minimum wage, but as you know, small businesses at times cannot afford this. And that's going to be very difficult for him to pass anything in his um, COVID response agenda uh, if that has it in there. One other small point about this is the state and local government money that he wants in there, which Republicans objected to vehemently um, to the negotiations with Nancy Pelosi. Uh, what the states have said is that the tax revenue that they've lost during the pandemic, they needed to be compensated. When you really dive into the numbers, they haven't lost as much as they said they have. So Republicans are just trying to be fiscally conservative about giving them that money, but it will create problems in his early efforts to try to corral the coronavirus. And has he given any indication as to what his first day one actions are going to be? There's been a couple of different stories about different executive orders that he might push. Do we have any sense for what things might look like even on Wednesday afternoon? Well, only with the the, um, the the health, the climate change one with the um, Keystone Pipeline. And he's going to try to do whatever he's talked about, as a matter of fact, trying to get some retired uh, nurses and doctors uh, into um the process of giving these shots out. He might well do that. He might do an executive order that's going to allow the shots to be given out at mom and pop um, pharmacies as opposed to the big ones like CVS and um, Walgreens. You can look for that too. I think he's really going to come out uh, with executive orders in that way with the, his healthcare issue and, and the coronavirus response first and his most, awesome. and most likely. Yeah. Joe, I know a lot of people are also curious about what President Trump's plans are going to be for for the next, you know, kind of uh, day and a half, especially on Wednesday. And we, we've got some stories out at justthenews.com for folks on that. But please give everybody an update on what the latest looks like for President Trump's Wednesday. 
Happy to. Well, you can glean a lot of this right from the White House report that they give out reporters in sort of advance. They do this all the time, a day in advance, a week in advance, so that they can have the media get in place. And if you sort of read between the lines there, it says that he's going to arrive and he's going to leave. He really wants to leave. I should back up here and tell you, he wants to leave as president, right? He doesn't want to leave Washington afternoon when Biden takes president. He wants to leave as the president of the United States. He wants to leave an Air Force One. If you take a little bit, if you kind of read through and sift through, you become sort of experienced in what these um, reports that the White House puts out for the reporters says he's going to re arrive in West Palm Beach Airport at noon, which oh, means- got about 10 seconds left here, you're saying. He yeah. Actually, he's gonna to have to leave Washington at about 8 a.m., 7.51. Now, this is supposed to happen at Andrews Air Force Base, and he has invited uh, people, his, his closest so staff- bumping, bumping right up against a break here. It sounds like President Trump might be flying to Florida Wednesday morning. We'll bring you the latest and stay right with us here on Actionable Intelligence. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. It has been a big news week already, and it's only Monday. And to break down some of the biggest stories that happened over the weekend and today, we're bringing in Amanda Head, Real America's Voice correspondent. Amanda, thanks so much for being with us today. Hi, Eric. Happy Monday. Thanks for having me. You bet. Hey, so Amanda, a lot's been happening, and I want to come to some of the events in D.C., but first I want to get your take. You're in D.C. right now, but a lot of times you're reaching out to our viewers from California. There's a new story up at justthenews.com, which is pointing out that Florida, which has been relatively open, is right now outperforming California when it comes to COVID cases, even though California has been under some of the most severe lockdowns in the country. Uh, what do you make of this and what are you hearing from your friends in California? You know, what's unbelievable is that Gavin Newsom is still pushing for more stringent and extended lockdowns. And I think that there, if there was ever a tale of two cities or a tale of two states, this is it. And I want to make sure that I get the words right from the Just the News article, so let's source this properly. Yeah. Florida, as of this week, has recorded a little over 1.5 million positive cases as a result of COVID. That, of course, is within the last year, basically mm -hmm. since the pandemic began in January while California has registered nearly 3 million, so double. Now keep in mind the population of California is roughly 40 million and Florida, I believe, is closer to 22 million. But per CDC figures, the two states are roughly equal in their population-adjusted case numbers residents. California at around uh, 7,300 and Florida at a little over 7,000. So for those of you in California, you know, there's a lot of fear-mongering. I see so many officials in California who are constantly pushing out uh, fear data, you know, oh my gosh, our hospitals are overrun, you know, our morgues are full and things like that. But Gavin Newsom tweeted this out. 
California has now administered more vaccines than any other state, getting 40% of our doses out and in the arms of our healthcare workers and most vulnerable. Now, Gavin Newsom is the master of semantic ambiguity because here's the truth behind that. California has technically given the most shots because they were given the most vaccines of any other state by far, but they have only administered 37% of those vaccinations, which ranks them 47 among 50 states when it comes to actually administering the vaccine. So a lot of funny business with Gavin Newsom's tweet there trying to put lipstick on a pig. Uh, but yeah, you know, two very, very different states and different uh, ways to handle COVID. And I just got to say, I think Florida's done it right. Yeah. And Amanda, what are you hearing? There's been this push now to possibly recall Gavin Newsom in California. Is that move picking up steam? How upset are people with the governor? First, we saw there was this you know, tremendous hypocrisy. He was out there dining at a time when he was telling other Californians that they couldn't do this. He's been closing other people's businesses while continuing to take a salary himself. Uh, right. where, does, where does that stand and also continuing to keep his winery open. Um, and it's yeah. not just Gavin Newsom, it is members of the LA County Health Board, uh, other mayors across California who have basically been saying, uh, you know, uh, what is it, do as me, not as thee, you know, follow me, not thee. Um, and so a lot of people in California are starting to wake up. The concern is that you have so many people in these densely populated areas, Los Angeles, Sacramento, San Francisco, San Diego, who, who I think follow the the science, but it's the science that they pick and choose. So it's almost as though Californians have become really comfortable with this new lifestyle. You know, they're perfectly okay ordering groceries and having them delivered, which I will admit prior to this past year, I never did it. And it is very convenient and nice, but there are so many people who are, are so willing to just absorb everything that these folks are telling them and not bother to look beyond the headlines, not even bother to Google something. Because, you know, when, when the French laundry debacle happened with Gavin Newsom, so many people didn't even know about that. So, so 1.5 million signatures is what's required to have the measure on the ballot to recall Gavin Newsom. Last I checked, I think they were uh, at close to 900,000. So they're well over halfway there, but they've got until March to make that happen. Those petitions are circulating and they are paper petitions, by the way. It's not an online petition, but thousands of people across California have been circling those petitions or circulating those petitions. And I went out to eat in Burbank, California four nights ago. It's one of the only restaurants in town. I think they're pretty much the only game in town because it was absolutely packed, but a place called Tinhorn Flats. And I named that business because I want to send people there. Um, but they have been open. They have a backdoor patio. That was yeah. the only area where there was dining. All of the servers were wearing masks. Every health protocol that I have heard was followed, and yet they are still getting fined by the health department $500 a day. But I looked across the street, and two businesses across the street had ga uh, recall Gavin Newsom signs in their window. So I really hope that that's just an anecdotal sign that things are moving forward, because Gavin Newsom, we saw what he did to San Francisco, and a lot of us prognosticated that that's what he was going to do to the rest of California. And you look at homelessness rates, even in Los Angeles, and crime rates, and, and you know other statistics and data like that. And he basically is turning the whole of California into San Francisco. Yeah. And Amanda, you do such a good job of giving our viewers a sense for what things are like uh, on the front lines. If you could, you're in Washington, D.C. right now. A lot of people have been reading on the news or seeing on the news like this tremendous lockdown that is happening around Washington, D.C. 
um, unprecedented security, fencing, all of this for what's essentially going to be um, an unattended inauguration in a couple of days. But if you could just give our viewers a sense from your personal perspective, what it's like being in Washington, D.C. right now. Yeah, you know, geographically, I live on the West Coast, so coming to the East Coast, coming to D.C., um, it's really interesting, you know, you have conversations about the Eastern Bloc, BLOC, with historical context, context, and coming to D.C., coming East, it almost feels like that. Obviously, there are troops everywhere, barricades everywhere. I flew in last night, and coming to my hotel, my Uber was able to get to my hotel, but we had to go around the world. But pretty much every checkpoint, you have to show your ID, you have to show show, uh, you know, good cause or reason for you to be where you are. So it's it's completely on lockdown. This this virtual inauguration, um, you know, nobody's really going to be able to be in attendance other than family members, congressional members, administration officials, things like that. It's going to be a very different kind of installment of a new president. Absolutely. Now, another another big story uh, that's making the rounds, it's been covered at Just the News and, and in other uh, locations, is this migrant caravan that is now moving towards the United States. Sounds like there are about 7,000 migrants who are making their way largely from Honduras, and they're saying that they want and expect Joe Biden to honor his promises of amnesty when they make it to the United States uh, of America. Break that down for us a little bit, some of the details and your, your analysis, if you would. I mean, first we have to handle the, the incredulity of the fact that just because of Joe Biden's rhetoric that they think that they can come here and that on day one they're just going to get let right. through. The wheels of government turn so incredibly slowly. Now, I'm not saying that that's not going to happen very, very soon because Joe Biden, an internal memo was released that showed some of his priorities within, you know, the first few months and the first 10 days. Um, and so I, I completely understand that these people feel like the welcome mat and the door is open, but it's not going to happen that quickly. But yeah, 11 million uh, illegal immigrants here in the country given a path to citizenship, to amnesty. And now you've got these 7,000 coming from Guatemala expecting to get in, which which I don't really blame them. I mean, the signals have been sent to them that America is open for your business, whether you are legal or illegal, and come on in. Yeah, and what do you make of the other details we're hearing about the Team Biden policy agenda? They've been rolling out more and more of these details about what they're likely to do in the first 10 days, including just recently, it sounds like they're planning to cancel the XL pipeline permit and pursuing a very ambitious agenda in the first 10 days. What What's grabbed your attention about the Biden agenda uh, as, as we're seeing it roll out? Yeah, canceling the XL pipeline, which has done a lot to create energy independence in America. What a terrible thing that must have been. Uh, rejoining the Paris Climate Accord, uh, tackling climate change and, and racial issues. Here I thought that COVID was going to be a priority. Joe Biden claims that COVID is going to be one of his first priorities in the first 10 days. But my issue is, you know, especially with reference to $2,000 checks going out to Americans, They've had months to do that, but now all of a sudden that Joe Biden is in office, he wants to to finally get that done. Um, but I, you know, we we've had a year of warning coming that this was what the what the Biden administration would focus on, and here we are. Yeah, and what are you hearing, Amanda? You're often talking uh, not only with folks on the Real America's Voice team and the Just the News team, but you're also talking to folks, you know, within. 
uh, within the government. What are you hearing about the likelihood of Biden being able to get these most ambitious agenda items passed when it sounds like there's a possibility that given this push to impeach President Trump again, that that might actually take up a lot of the time and energy in Joe Biden's first 100 days or so. Yeah, you know, I, I think that the wise thing for Democrats to do, uh, not just Joe Biden, but Democrats in Congress and especially in the Senate, the wise thing to do is to move beyond impeaching a president who is going to be gone at 12.01 on Wednesday. Um, but, you know, I think that there is going to be a fair amount of items on Joe Biden's agenda that he will be able to pass. But but keep in mind, a lot of these things he's talking about doing via, via executive order. And these are the types of things that, as Obama said, with a pen and a phone, that you can get them done very quickly. But guess what? The next administration, whoever comes in in four years or eight years, can just as easily undo them. And considering we've got a moving momentum towards Republicans, a maybe a new brand of Republicans in 2022, I think the Democrats better tread very, very lightly or they are going to end up with a vast minority in both the House and the Senate. Yeah, and it certainly looks like in the last 20 seconds we have left, Amanda, it certainly looks like the left is pushing very hard for Joe Biden to enact their, their policy priorities. Again, just 20 seconds, but any thoughts on this pressure coming from the left? Yeah, you know, the, the very far left is going to try to push Joe Biden in that direction. And I'm not saying that he is not going to be amenable to their concerns. But a lot of folks who voted for Joe Biden, I think, don't really realize what they voted for as far as its impact on them. The 11 million for amnesty pathway to citizenship. Who is that going to affect the most? Definitely. Hey, you know. I think we're running up against the time. Thank you again for joining us as ever, folks. We'll be right back in just a minute. Well, welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Reitens. This is the show that respects your intelligence, and we bring you the stories that so often the mainstream media aren't willing to cover. Uh, one of those stories has to do with Vice President Pence's final trip as vice president. He went to Fort Drum, and there he spoke to the troops. He made a special effort to thank them and their families. He was joined on that trip by the second lady of the United States, Karen Pence, who became briefly emotional while she was introducing Vice President Pence. Again, an important story that a lot of folks at the mainstream media haven't covered. And we think it's important that you have an opportunity to hear from Vice President Pence directly. So take a minute to have a listen to Vice President Pence's last speech, last official appearance as the Vice President of the United States, being introduced by the second lady, Karen Pence. Take a listen. You know, it is such an honor to be with you. Here I go. For our very last trip as Vice President and Second Lady of the United States. But it is such an honor to be here with you. You know, we're a military family, just like all of you. Our son is an F-35 Marine aviator. He's married to our daughter-in-law, Sarah, and they're expecting our first grandchild in April. We're very excited. <laughs> I thought that might get an applause. But there's somebody else who's been fighting to stand for our military 
and our military families for the last four years. And each one of you are near and dear to his heart. And this is where he wanted to be for his final speech as Vice President of the United States. So I give you Vice President Mike Pence. Well, hello, Fort Drum. Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, General Brett Funk, all the members of the Armed Forces of the United States who are gathered here, U.S. Army strong. Thanks for the warm welcome. It is great to be back at the backbone of U.S. Army readiness, the home of Mountain Tough, the soldiers of the 10th Mountain Division. You know, for more than 100 years, the North Country has been the training ground for America's soldiers. Today, the men and women of the 10th Mountain Division train here, deploy here, and climb to glory. So give yourselves a round of applause. America is proud of the 10th Mountain. And while you're at it, would you join me in showing your appreciation? For someone who has been so dedicated these last four years to military families and spouses, he's literally traveled the world, encouraging those who stand alongside all the men and women who serve. And as you just heard, she's a Marine Corps mom, my wife of 35 years, but the best second lady the United States has ever had. Would you join me in thanking Karen Pence? for all she has done for America these last four years. I'm so proud of you. Isn't she great? You know, I'm here to deliver a very simple message to each and every one of you on behalf of your Commander-in-Chief and every American. Thank you for your service. And to the 1st Brigade Combat Team, welcome home. You know, after traveling across this country over the past four years, I can assure all of you in uniform, the American people are more grateful for your service than you will ever know. I hear about it all the time. You come from the rest of us, but the people of this country know you're the best of us, and we're grateful, not only to those of you who wear the uniform, but we're grateful to those who serve alongside. So many of you serve every day as a family while you train, while you deploy. It's your wives, your husbands, and the parents who keep the home fires burning. And as you just heard, from my wife, Karen, we know what we're talking about. We have two married active duty military personnel in our immediate family, and we couldn't be more proud. So while we give a rousing round of applause to the 10th, why don't you get on your feet and show how much we appreciate all the family members who stand by you who serve. Let's hear it for the spouses and the kids and the parents who make it all work. 
You know, as I look out at all of you gathered here, it really is remarkable to think of the countless American heroes who stood where we're all standing today. Warriors who've come here, trained here, and deployed from here to virtually every corner of the world. Since 9-11, the 10th Mountain has been the most deployed division of the U.S. Army, with thousands deployed every day. The 10th Mountain Brigades have served a combined 46 deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, the first conventional units to deploy to Afghanistan after 9-11 came from right here at Fort Drum. The 2nd Brigade Combat Team and the 10th Sustainment Brigade are deployed in Afghanistan even as we speak. And if they're looking on from afar, we say thank you for your service. We are proud of you all. In fact, it may well be true in the days ahead that members of the 10th Mountain Division could be among the last conventional units, should the day come that the war in Afghanistan finally comes to an end. Your mission in Afghanistan has been vital to the security of the American people. This year will mark 20 years since the forces of radical Islamic terror plotted and perpetrated the deadliest attack on the American homeland and the history of our country. From the safe haven of Afghanistan, the terrorists of Al-Qaeda struck the United States on September 11, 2001. I was a new member of Congress then, had just arrived that year representing the state of Indiana. And I'll never forget where I was, just off Capitol Hill when I heard that the towers were struck in New York City or the moment when I walked out of that office building across from the U.S. Capitol and saw what was a clear blue sky over Washington, D.C., literally filled with billows of mud-brown and black smoke billowing out of the Pentagon. It's a sight I'll never forget. Later that day, I was able to slip back across the Potomac River to go to the little house Karen and I had rented with our children as my service began in Washington, D.C. While there was work to be done on Capitol Hill, we thought it was important that we gathered with our kids, young children at the time. We sat around the kitchen table to tell them what happened, to reassure them, and to pray. But I'll never forget the moment that I was walking out of the kitchen and my daughter, Audrey, who was just seven years of age, followed me out the door. And she said, Dad, I have a question. And I looked down at her and I said, Audrey, I have to go. I have things I need to do. And she said, no, Daddy, I have a question. And I said, I really have to go. And she stamped her feet and said, Daddy, I have a question. And I looked at her and I said, like a sensitive father that I was, what? And she looked up at me with those big brown eyes, seven years of age. And she said, Daddy, if we have to make war, 
do you have to go? I dropped down on one knee and I threw my arms around her because I suddenly knew where her little heart and mind was at. I hugged her and I told her, Daddy's too old. But I tell that story because there's not a day gone by in 20 years that I haven't thought of all of you who answered that question differently to your families, to your loved ones. A generation of heroes, you all are, who stepped forward and took the fight to our enemies on their soil. There's never been a day gone by that I and every American hasn't been grateful to the 10th Mountain Division and every American hero in uniform. Thank you all.